I'm guaranteed to trip over some of this at least once. Mm -hmm. I need that. You're taking it away. (laughs) (laughs) Scoot that up a little bit. Try not to screw up anything for the sound people. Hi, guys. Hi. My name's Peter. Um, I'm no one special here at the branch. I don't have a fancy like title like intern, you know. I'm just a member here. Uh, but um, Gabe gave me the opportunity to speak today. Um, when I originally asked him, I thought I would be able to do it fairly easy um, because the branch is all about expository preaching. If you don't know what that means, it's a big word that says we go verse by verse. Um, so we're a big fan of that. So I was thinking, oh, he'll give me a passage. It'll be really easy to talk about all of these things. I'll just read it for like a week, pray over it. God will give me something to say. And I asked Gabe what he wanted me to preach on. He said, the solitariness of God. And I said, first of all, that's not a word. (laughs) Second of all, what the heck? We do expository preaching. Um, But uh, thankful that he had the... uh, the courage to let me come up here and speak, I guess, um, and just kind of believed in me for that. So, um, like I said, my name's Peter. If you don't know anything about me, you're welcome. Um, you don't want to, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I think I'm a pretty decent guy. But there are three things that you need to know about me. The first one, I say this every time I speak anywhere. First one is my wife is beautiful. Um, I say that for a f- couple of reasons. The first is most people don't believe me that that's my wife. So I gotta just get that out there. Um, two, I'm prideful about it because she's beautiful. And three, to give everyone else who's in the room who's single hope. That girl that's out of your league will eventually settle and then you can, you can get married. It works. Whatever. Just make yourself present enough that when she decides she wants to settle, you can be there for her. Um, so, <laughs> um, no, but seriously, um, there's two other things. Um, one thing is I am super conversational in everything I do. If you ever read anything that I write, it is super conversational. I got in a lot of trouble for it in school because everyone wanted like a professional essay and mine's just super like article, like I'm going to talk to people. Um, I'm that way when I speak as well. So I'm going to ask you some questions. I'll preface if they're rhetorical. If I ask questions, please answer. Um, I need that. Uh, I'm already tripping. Um, The third thing is almost 85% of the time I have no idea what I'm talking about. So that being said, I promise you I have thought about this and prayed about this for a long time. I think I have an idea of what I've talked about and what I'm going to talk about. The biggest thing for me is don't take anything I say as truth for in and of itself. I believe that it is truth and I want you to believe that it is truth, but please read it for yourself. Um, please go back and study that. I do misspeak. I am human. Um, so that's, I just always preface with that. Um, so that being said, today we are going to talk about the solitariness of God. Yes, apparently it is a word. I'm pretty sure A.W. Pink made it up because he's the one who wrote the book that I kind of based a lot of this off of. Um, but basically what that means is God is alone in his sovereignty and in his glory. There's nothing that compares to him, nothing that's even close. Um, And while that seems like a truth that most people believe, I think we grow up from very young not believing that truth. Um, And I'll get into what I mean there. Uh, So basically, I work at a summer camp. I'm the marketing director at Strong Rock Campus in Cleveland, Georgia. Um, Shameless plug. And so a lot of kids come into camp with this idea of what is called dualism, theological dualism. It's basically a fancy word for saying that there's God, and God is the protagonist, and there's some sort of antagonist. 
And if you think about it, that's kind of how we're raised on everything. That's how we see a lot of things. Who's seen Endgame? Avengers Endgame. Don't worry, I'm not going to give away any spoilers. I haven't seen it, even though I already know all the spoilers. So, Endgame. The, the pinnacle entertainment, the top grossing movie almost of all time in the first weekend, all of this is based around the idea of dualism. There's the Avengers who are the protagonist, Thanos who's the antagonist, and they're dueling it out. And one is going to win. Who's going to win? And it takes a whole team to take down Thanos because they're almost equal in power. So that's where a lot of our entertainment comes from. That's, that's how we're trained on books. There's a protagonist and an antagonist that are almost equal um, in the book. And so a lot of kids who come to camp believe in that. And I did when I was a very young Christian. Um, the first thing that I believed about Christianity and the thing that I had been taught and some of the language that I had heard around the church was there's a battle for your soul. It's God versus Satan. Who are you going to choose? And that's not at all what the Bible actually talks about. God is completely solitary in who he is and in what he does, and Satan can't even come close to comparing. So that's what I'm going to dive into first, is God versus Satan. I've got three points, God versus Satan, God versus other gods, and then God versus the flesh. Because those are the most common, I think, protagonist-antagonist matchups that you'll come across in preaching and helping people um, figure out more about their own faith. So the first one I have is God versus Satan. Um, and basically what I want to do is I'm going to flip to Job. Uh, Job 1. I didn't give anyone any verses for up here. So we're going to play some like Bible drill. All right. I don't know if any of you grew up in Awana like I did. But see who can flip there the fastest. Because um, I've got a lot of scripture. I like to back up what I say with a lot of scripture because that means it's not coming from me. It's coming from God. So Job 1 verse 6 through 12. Job 1, 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. First, can we just talk about do we want God to say that about us? Um, that's something someone really important in my life told me when I was really young, of be like Job. That's not something you hear a lot because Job had a pretty crappy, as the story goes on, most of you know, Job gets everything taken away from him, and that kind of sucks. But what he said is, do you want the Lord to say that about you? He's a man who loves me and shuns evil. Um, so does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. In verse 11, but now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well, then everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So that passage, um, I love the story of Job. So a lot of parts of my life have a decent amount of suffering in them. Um, I don't talk about it a whole lot because I don't want to be that guy who just complains about the suffering that's happened in his life. But throughout my life, there's been a lot of things where I've, I've struggled with this concept of God is good and why would God do this? And Job has gotten me through that. And the number one thing that I've found in Job that kind of changed my faith is that Satan listens to God here. Satan give, or God gives a command. He says, you can, you can take anything, he, anything you want, but you cannot touch the man himself. 
And Satan goes and follows those directives. It's not until later that Satan comes back and basically asks God permission, am I allowed to touch his health? Am I allowed to injure him? Am I allowed to uh, take away his family, things like that? And God says, you can do everything, but do not take his life. You cannot kill him, but you can strike him with illness. And Satan, once again, responds and obeys God. And so that's, that's the biggest defense for that God versus Satan duality that we see a lot and a lot of people believe is a misconception is right here, God is telling Satan to do something and Satan says, yes, sir. Um, Satan was created by God. Satan did not exist as long as God has existed. And so how can something that has been created be on equal playing field as its creator? So... That's basically the defense um, for God versus Satan. As you, as you kind of move along in your faith and start to read the word, you get into the Old Testament. Um, most of the Bible stories we have as kids are from the Old Testament. They're from Genesis, and they're about the beauty of what God can do and the miracles that he works in the Old Testament. And I think a lot of what we see in the Old Testament is God versus other gods. So that's the second point. Um, God versus other gods is basically... We all know that other gods don't exist. Uh, we are aware of that. In the Old Testament, there's so many people, there's so many idols out there. Um, you've got your golden calves. You've got your statues to other gods. You've got your chocolate bunnies if you're a VeggieTales fan. Um, all of these things that other people are worshiping. And uh, God does this really cool thing with Elijah. So um, the next place we're going to go is 1 Kings. Like I said, a little bit of a Bible drill here. If you're in Job, it's backwards. So 1 Kings uh, 17 is where we're going to start, and we'll move into 18 here in a minute. So 1 Kings 17, we're only going to read two verses from it, verse 1 and verse 7. So verse 1 is, In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, son of Eliha, became king of Israel and Samaria, and he reigned nine years. Um, I'm in second Kings. I'm so sorry. I was like, that's not what I planned at all. Uh, how am I supposed to connect this, Peter? What the heck? My notes were wrong. Um, so first Kings 17 verse one. Now, Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. It's what God spoke over the people. And uh, in verse seven, some time later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Um, so we're at a point in the desert where Elijah is, where there is a drought. The desert's already a pretty dry place, but the desert in a drought is a really, really dry place. Um, it says there, even rivers and brooks were dried up. Things that are almost constant sources of water are completely dry. So if you flip over to 1 Kings 18, we're now going to get into a, uh, one of my favorite stories from the Bible, for sure. Verse 20 through 40. I'm doing a lot of reading today, so I hope you guys can uh, keep up. So verse 20. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. 
I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of my Lord, the God who answered by fire. He is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. Since there are so many of you, call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered, and they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice, but there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seas of seed. We arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up all the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered them there. So, in this story, in this picture, we see Elijah and God versus another God, versus Baal, um, this God that had so many prophets that were still in the land. Elijah's the only prophet for the Lord at this point, and he basically challenges them and says, your God doesn't even exist, and let me show you. Um, and so he, he builds these things, and I love how sassy Elijah gets, how confident he is in his God, um, making fun of them, saying their God is on a trip. Um, I've read some translations that are saying he's relieving himself, um, things along those lines. Like, So basically, how cocky can Elijah be and them still not believe how powerful his God is? And so what Elijah does is, Instead of just insulting them, he says, I'm going to prove it even greater. I'm going to pour water all over this, even though it's supposed to be consumed with fire. And what I always found interesting is he's pouring tons of water on this in the midst of a drought in the desert. And what we read in that verse in 17, in verse 1, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word except when God says there will be dew or rain, except when God says there will be water, there will be no water. And somehow Elijah finds enough water to fill a trench around this altar and cover it and soak the wood just to prove how powerful God is. And what I take from this is God being as powerful and as glorious as he is disadvantages himself. 
Because there's no water in the land unless God says so. When Elijah finds water, God must have given him water. Um, it doesn't say where he got it from. It doesn't say he went to the river or anything. It just says that they found water and poured it upon the altar. God put himself at a disadvantage just to prove how glorious and powerful he is against these other gods. The other gods didn't even show up. This is a forfeited, forfeited match. It's like going to a soccer game. The other team doesn't show up and the ref says, well, you win and you go out and play a soccer game anyway. That's what just happened. God says, you know what? I will prove to you, not only am I here, but I am way more powerful than you can even know. I mean, it licks up water. Fire has to be so hot to lick up water. I'm a pyromaniac. You can ask my wife. Anytime we go camping, I get the fire as large as it possibly can be because I love it. It's so much fun. It feels powerful. It feels awesome. I love the heat. And I, yet, I have yet to get a fire hot enough to burn rock, to burn water. And I have tried my hardest. Believe you me. So there's, there's this incredible object and picture of God in all of his glory and all of his power, destroying the thought of any other God. And it says that when their God didn't answer, they cut themselves. They were bleeding. A lot of translations say they were limping around their altar and Elijah's making fun of them. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I don't want to be the limper. I don't want to be the person limping and cutting themselves in hopes for another God that's never going to come. I want to be the Elijah who can not necessarily make fun of, but is a runner. He runs up to Mount Carmel. Uh, later on in the passage, it says he runs down to Mount Carmel. And he, you see this incredible show of power of God versus other gods, proving that there are no other gods. So that cannot be the antagonist to God. If God is our protagonist in the book that we're writing, the antagonist cannot be other gods because they merely don't exist. Um, and that's what I think we see here in this. So the third antagonist um, I think we need to delve into is the flesh. Um, and I think this is more of a New Testament concept. Um, as, you, as you dive deeper, as you get older, if we're still walking through this timeline of when you became a Christian and believing God versus Satan, and there is spiritual warfare, which I do agree with, um, but God will always win. You, you believe in that for a while, and then you go to God versus other gods because you read that in the Old Testament, and then you get to the New Testament after the gospel and you see that the biggest thing that can come between us and God is the flesh. That's it. We're born into sin. We're born into our flesh. Uh, there's nothing good that we can do. Um, there's no good that can come from us because we are born into sin because of what Adam and Eve did. And we have to be okay with that. And that's why it's so beautiful that God came to save us. So if Satan must listen to other gods or listen to God and other gods don't exist, the antagonist must be our flesh, is what a lot of the misconception is and what a lot of us believe. Um, does anyone have a picture of God that they think of? Like mine, if I'm thinking about God, the, the personification of God that I like to give is a really, really old man. He looks like 145 sitting on a porch in a rocker and he's got a glass of water and he's smoking a pipe. That's my idea of God. Like the wisest person looking over his kingdom. Does anyone else have a picture of God that they, they try to personify him as? I mean, I can stand here all day. I don't have lunch plans. What? Old man with a beard. Yeah, that's a, that's a very common one. I mean, my, my old man does have a beard. <laughs> so 
for us to try to understand God, there's a lot of times that we try to personify him. Um, we take different aspects that we read about in the Bible and we, we try to personify them in, in things that we can understand because we can't even fathom who God is. We can't fathom the power of what God is. I mean, if you look at Genesis 1.1, God has always been. He always will be. There is no beginning to him, no end to him. He created the universe. And that sounds well and good and something like we, something that we all believe, and I, I think we do all believe that, but I don't know about you guys, but the more I think about that, the more my head hurts. Because I can understand God from like, like hundreds of years in the past. I can understand like, oh yeah, he's really old. He's not even old. He doesn't have age. He doesn't age. He's just existed forever. And the longer I try to fathom that, the longer I'm like, what? That doesn't make any sense. I can't even wrap my mind around the idea of something always being because everything I know was created at some point. Everything in our world has been created and made and has a beginning and an end. There is no beginning to God. There is no end to God. And that's so hard for us to understand because there's nothing in our life that survives on those terms other than God. He is alone in that. He is solitary being that has never been created and will never be destroyed. And that's important to remember. I mean, if you're trying to understand who God is, I think it's really important to look and see who God says he is. So if you look in the Old Testament, there's a time where he's setting Moses to free his people. And Moses says, who shall I say sent me? And God says, tell them that I am sent you. I am is the verb that means to be basically. God is just being. His, his mere existence is who he is. He is the, the verb of being. I don't even know how to describe it. I don't know how to explain it. This is actually where we get the word Yahweh from. So it actually translates as Y-H-W-H. There's no vowels. It's called the Tetragrammaton. Yeah, I know. It's, how's that for a $10 word? Um, got that from the School of Theology of Google. Um, it's called the Tetragrammaton, and we don't even know how to pronounce it. We had to, add, we had to add vowels to it because we don't understand words without vowels. There's no word in the human dictionary that does not have a vowel. So we had to add vowels just merely to understand his name, merely to understand the least amount you can understand about a person. Even if I don't know someone, if I've heard of them, I know their name. We can't even say God's name because it doesn't, it doesn't translate. We have to change it and we have to try to wrap our heads around it and we have to diminish it almost in order to even try to understand it. That's how far we are away from God. That we, we have no way to wrap our heads around even his name. So God created us and he really had no reason to. Who in here is a logical person? Show of hands. Who, who operates on terms of logic and when they make decisions, it's logical step by step. Okay, who in here acts on emotion and survives on emotion? Yeah, yeah, those, those are the fun ones. And interacting is a lot of fun. As you notice, my wife is not a logical person and I am. It's, it works out really great when she comes home and is like, oh man, I've got all of these things going on. I'm like, well, that's stupid. It just, she's like, I'm mad, don't be. I don't, I don't know what else to tell you. Don't, don't be mad. Choose to not be mad. She's like, that's not how that works. So I'm very much a pros and cons list kind of a guy. I weigh the pros and cons of every decision. I actually call it analysis paralysis because I end up never making a decision. 
there's always more pros and more cons to be had. And so I sit there for like an hour and try to figure out like, what the heck am I supposed to do here? God didn't do that when he created us. There is no pros and cons list because if there was a pros and cons list, I promise you the cons would be a lot longer than the pros. He had no purpose to create us because he needs nothing. He has existed for all time by himself as the Trinity. He is self-sufficient in everything that he does. He had no need of us. There's nothing we can add to God. He is already as glorious as he can be because he is the meaning of glory. He is being. He is the sense of being. There's nothing we can add to God. He created us because he wanted to create us. And it's as simple as that. He created us as an outpouring and overflowing of his glory so that we could see how glorious he was. He didn't need it, but he just wanted it. And I think that's an important distinction because I think that God wants you. He wants you bad. That's why he sent his son to die for you. That's why he constantly is chasing after you and wants you in his kingdom and wants you to be a part, but it's not about you. And that's what's very important is, yes, we, we like to sing and talk about how much God wants us, and it's a beautiful concept, and it's a beautiful thing because he does want us, but it's not about you. It's about something greater than you, and it's about something more than you because we can't even fathom how good it is, how glorious the Lord is. In Malachi 3.6, it says, I, the Lord God, do not change. He doesn't. So by creating us, yes, we can glorify him in our minds and we can, we can give him the glory he deserves, but he's already got it. There's nothing we can add to him. There's nothing we can, we can, he can gain from us because we can't even exist on the same plane as him. Basically, the way I like to see it is if we're talking about God as the protagonist and something else as the antagonist, that's not how that works. God isn't the protagonist, he's the author. He's on a completely different plane of existence, so much so that when you read a book, how often does the protagonist stop and think about what the author is doing? It doesn't happen. It just doesn't. And that's, that's the difference is we, we, through the gospel and through Jesus Christ, have the ability to, to contemplate who the author is. And that's what I think is important about this whole series that we're doing, the contemplation of the attributes of God, is you want to understand who this being is, who this person is who wrote you into your life, who made you the protagonist and the antagonist to your own story. I, I imagine it almost like Play-Doh. Has anyone ever tried to make themselves out of Play-Doh? Like as close as you can get, even if you had like tools to like carve out a shirt and like make it look so on point, it still just lays there flat and gives you nothing. That's how I imagine it. We are created in his image. He's trying to make us look like him, but no matter, no matter what, we can't. That Plato person's not gonna have a heart and lungs to breathe and to speak and to think on their own with a brain. They just can't exist on their own. They can't exist by themselves, but you created it in your image, but it's merely a fraction of what you are. We are the Plato man for God. We are merely a fraction, uh, not even a fraction, Whatever is smaller than a fraction. That's what we are as far as the picture of God. And it's our duty to be even more like him every single day and try to strive for that, but we will always fall short. And that's why Jesus enters the building. That's why Jesus comes because our goal is to be as much like God as possible, but we can't even understand his plane of existence. And so we have to be sent Jesus 
to die for our sins and to let us know that we can be with God. We still can't be like God, but we can be with God. So I think that's, that's just super important to think about. Um, it's impossible for the flesh to be the antagonist to God because like I said with Satan, God created the flesh and something that has been created cannot be equal or greater than the creator. Um, in Job 30, 35, verses seven and eight, if you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness only affects a man like yourself and your righteousness only the sons of men. Even Job's wickedness only affects him and his righteousness only affects him. It cannot affect who God is or how great God is. And that's an important concept to remember as far as the confidence of sharing the gospel is just as we can't add anything to God, we can't take anything away from God. We can't take anything away from his power. I'm not giving you license to go preach blasphemy or just say things without any scriptural basis, but you can't screw up the gospel. What God wants, God will get. And so if he's using you to get that, he will use you to get that. And I think so often we are so scared. Me right now, I'm shaking. I don't know if you can see it because I don't, I don't preach very often. I don't get up and teach in front of a large group of people very often. And I'm scared to death that I'm gonna say something wrong up here. I'm scared to death that I'm gonna say something in scripture and Gabe's gonna give me a look from the back like, oh God, why did I let him preach? But the beauty of it is I can't take anything away from who God is. My flesh cannot get in the way of the gloriousness of God. And we can't give him any more glory, even in worship. I think a lot of times we sing like we give you the glory or we lift up your name. His name is already lifted too high for us to reach. Now I think worship's important. And I think those lyrics mean we are lifting up his name in our minds. And as a community, we are lifting up the glory that we wanna show him, that's what we are doing. It is all for him and we are giving him that. But it's like, if I'm trying to lift up his name, he is the ceiling and I'm down here. I can't, I can't lift the ceiling, no matter how hard I try, no matter where I go, I'm not gonna reach it. I can't reach who God is. The only way to truly understand and see the glory of God in those worshipful moments, in my opinion, the only way to make God higher is to make yourself lower. That gap gains. The ceiling is not super high, like I can't lift the ceiling any higher, but if I get lower, there's now a larger gap. And so I think that's where, where worship comes from and, and what worship needs to be is a lowering of yourself to then glorify who God is. And he already has all the glory. We can't give him any more. But how often do we think about God? Not enough. And worship is a refocusing of that. That everything we have, everything we do, we are calling out to God and we are lifting it up for him to say, please take it, this is yours. Everything in creation is his. And I think that's a huge part of the gospel and what that looks like. Basically, something that C.S. Lewis said fit in really well with this, and I, I love this quote. God who needs nothing, loves into existence holy superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. He creates the universe already foreseeing the buzzing clouds of flies around the cross. 
the flayed back pressed against the uneven stakes, the nails driven through the messial nerves, the repeated incipient suffocation as the body droops, the repeated torture of back and arms as it time after time, for breath's sake, hitched up. If I may dare the biological image, God is a host who deliberately creates his own parasites. He causes us to be that we may exploit and take advantage of him. Herein is love. This is love himself. And I love the imagery of that, that we are a parasite. Because parasites cannot exist or survive on their own. They must have a host. So if you think of like the most common parasite, a leech. Leeches grasp onto things and, and take and steal their nutrients constantly. That's the only way for them to survive. That's what we are. We are leeches. And what C.S. Lewis is saying here is God literally created leeches. And when we try to run away from him, he grabs us and latches us onto himself. He literally says, drink my blood and eat my flesh. He's the only host that we can't take anything away from. If we try to latch onto anything else, it will die because we steal all of the nutrients. It will not be enough for us, us parasites that are just a succubus stealing nutrients from something else. I can't latch on to my wife. I can only latch on to the Lord because my wife will fail me just as I will fail her if I let her latch on to me. So that's my question is, what are you latching on to that is eventually going to fail you when you need to be latching on to the Lord? Because in my opinion, that's what solitariness means is he is the one all glorious, all powerful being in all of existence that will not fail and will not faint no matter how much we suck away from him. No matter how much of his gloriousness we try to steal, no matter how often we fail him, he gets no weaker. He continues in all things forever. And that's what the solitariness of the Lord means to me, is that he is the solitary thing that has always existed and always will that we can't take anything from, but he calls us to come and drink of his blood and eat of his flesh. And I think so often we attach ourselves onto other things because we literally can't exist without something. If you know anyone who doesn't know the Lord, they are, they are latched onto something else. It may be money, it may be power, it may be, may be their job, a girlfriend, a boyfriend. There are so many things in our world that we can latch onto that will eventually fail and without us even realizing it. And God is the one thing that will not. And so that's the question that I have and I'm probably gonna leave it at that as I wrap up here, of what are you latched onto that is not Christ? Or even better yet, because this is a big one for me, who are you letting latch onto you instead of pointing them to Christ? Because I like to be that person. I like to think that I can support these parasites around me. I like to think that I can be the lifeblood, that I can, in a way, play God, even though that's not how I'm thinking of it in the moment, and I will fail. If I let my wife latch on to me, I will fail and fail hard. Like I said, I'm a logical person. She's an emotional. I will fail time and time again if I don't point her to Christ first. And that's what he uses us for. We are not powerless. He gives us the power, but the power to point people to him and then help them. So, like I said, 
drink of my blood and eat of my flesh as the band comes up, we are going to have communion. And um, it's an incredible moment to refocus. For a long time, I went to a Baptist church that didn't have communion every Sunday, and I never understood the concept of communion every Sunday. It felt like a chore. It felt like something that is just another checkoff list on your a checkoff on your checkoff list. But it isn't, the more I've done it here at the branch, the more it's like every Sunday I get an opportunity to commune with the Lord and remind myself that my only purpose and my only life force comes from his body and it comes from who he is. So I encourage you to drink of the blood and eat of the flesh, which is represented by bread and grape juice back there. Um, I do ask if you're not a Christian yet, if you're still finding your way on, your, on that journey that you do not partake, it's something that we partake of as the body of Christ. Um, but thank you guys so much for listening to me rant for <laughs> almost an hour. Just remember that as you go and take communion and as we worship, what is your purpose and what are you latched on to? Are you latched on to something that is eventually going to fail you? Or are you latched on in every possible way to God and his word and Jesus? And that's all I've got. I'm going to pray this out. God, thank you so much for everything that you do, for all that you've given, and that you are unchanging. As Malachi says, there is nothing, nothing that changes you, including us. We can't take anything away from the gloriousness of who you are. God, help us remember that and give us confidence in that. That no matter when we fail, you will pick us back up and allow us once again to sustain life from what you give us, the life that you have outpouring from you. God, I pray that anything I said here that is not of you gets forgotten. That anything that is of my own pride or of, of my own thought that is not true to what you have taught us and what you have told us doesn't leave this room. It gets forgotten. It fell on deaf ears. But Lord, whatever is from you, I pray that ears have heard it and that it will not be forgotten as we leave from this place, that we will live on those truths that you have given us constantly throughout the rest of this week and the rest of our lives. God, you are so good, and thank you for sending your son to die for us, for adopting us into your family and allowing us to exist with you and to eat from you and to be given life from you through your son, Jesus Christ. In your holy name I pray, amen.